embarrassed, ashamed, confused, ambivalent, frightened. Those were the responses that I heard recently as I sat with a group of Jewish adults in a synagogue. I had asked them to complete the following sentence. When I think of Israel, I am, once again, embarrassed, ashamed, confused, ambivalent, frightened. That's what goes through their minds as they think about Israel. And it's also what goes through their souls as they think about Israel. I was shocked, but I was not surprised. From the Religion News Service, this is Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred. And I'm your host, Rabbi Jeff Salkin. When I say that I was shocked, but not entirely surprised, what I mean is that I have come to understand, and I even come to accept the fact that the emotional ties of American Jews to Israel might not be as deep as we had once imagined them to be. Let me give you a data point for this. Everyone loves the Taglit Birthright program. We send our kids, we send our grandkids. We love it. This brings young American Jews for intense experiences in Israel, and it has vastly increased the number of young American Jews who have visited Israel at least once. And more than that, this is amazing. I recently heard that 53,000 young Jews, please just get your head around that number, 53,000 American Jews, young Jews, have registered for birthright. 30,000 will be able to go, and the rest are on waiting lists. This is amazing, but it does not obscure another fact. In Daniel Gordis's new book on Israel, Impossible Takes Longer, he compares the statistics of Jews in diaspora communities who have visited Israel. Now, this is really interesting. 70% of Canadian Jews have visited Israel once or more. 95% of Jews in the UK have visited Israel. 70% of French Jews who have this habit of staying, largely because of their perception that Jewish life in France has become increasingly dangerous. 70% of Mexican Jews have visited Israel. More than half of Argentinian Jews. American Jews, 40%. The lowest percentage of all diaspora communities. So there is emotional distance between many American Jews and Israel. And look, I have to be really honest with you, this predates the current crisis. You know, as we record this, we're just days away from Yom Kippur. I'm going to tell you what was going through my mind in Seoul on Yom Kippur, and that of most Jews who were awake and aware. 50 years ago on Yom Kippur, the Arabs launched a surprise attack on Israel, the holiest day of the calendar. And it was the most precarious single moment in Israel's existence up to that moment. That was the Yom Kippur War. The threat was real. It was existential. And there were those who believed that everything was at stake. I think everything's at stake again. We have a guest today who's going to tell you what's at stake. But I will say this. You have been reading my column. You have been 
listening to other podcasts, you've been paying attention to what's going on in the news, unless you've been living in a cave that happens to have a mezuzah on it. The current government of Israel, with its extreme right-wing, racist, homophobic, and the majority of American Jewry-phobic elements, has shaken the Jewish world. And we've just never seen this. We've had right-wing governments before. We've survived this. But this is like, oh my God, really? And it's exacerbated the emotional distance between American Jews and Israel. This is an existential crisis. One of my colleagues said, we need family therapy. So I want to teach you today about an institution in Israel that you need to know about, and I want to introduce you to the woman who's leading its work. It's called Iraq. No, not the country. The Israel Religious Action Center, Iraq.org, I-R-A-C.org. When you're done with this, you're going to go there and you're going to make a donation. It's affiliated with the Israel Movement for Progressive Judaism. That's Reform Judaism in Israel. And for decades, Iraq has been struggling for Israel's democratic soul. It fights for religious pluralism and against gender segregation in the public sphere. And this has been a lonely battle. You know, what's been going on for the last nine months? Nine months. Now, this is really interesting. Nine months. That's a gestational period. (laughs) You can have a baby in nine months. What's the baby that's been born? What's been born howling and screaming like the blasts of the shofar still ringing in my ears from the end of Yom Kippur? The pro-democracy protests have brought millions of Israelis to the streets. They are fighting for Israel's democratic character. They're fighting for an inclusive Jewish identity, whether they know it or not. They are implicitly or explicitly ready to say, many of them, there's more than one way to be Jewish and that Orthodox extremists do not have the exclusive right to define Judaism. So with all that, we welcome Orly Erez Lukovsky. She is the executive director of the Israel Religious Action Center She's been doing that since November 2022. She graduated from the Faculty of Law at Tel Aviv University. She clerked at the Israeli Supreme Court. She studied for a master's degree in law at Columbia University. She focused on human rights. She's a member of both the Israeli and the New York Bar. And she started working as an attorney at the Israel Religious Action Center in 2004, and she was the director of its legal department between 2014 and 2021. She led the legal struggle against discrimination on the basis of religious affiliation. She fought against gender segregation in the public sphere, racial incitement. She has worked to abolish gender segregation on public buses. She has worked on breaking the orthodox monopoly regarding the funding of salaries of rabbis. And she has worked to disqualify racist candidates from running for the Knesset. IRAC.org to learn more about her and her work. She is one of the true statespeople of progressive Judaism in Israel. So, Orly, it's nice to have you here. Thank you so much, Rabbi Sadekin. It's great to be here. Tell me, how are your holidays? My holidays are great. I've had quite an amazing and moving and uplifting Yom Kippur prayers. But then, you know, when we learned about what happened at the center of Tel Aviv, the gender-segregated prayer which was out there in the public sphere and the protests that ensued, and the violence was sort of a very hard uh, shift from the holiness and you know, inspiring Yom Kippur prayers to the reality that we are facing every day now for nine months. 
So you're jumping ahead. I wanted to ask you about that. So let's just start with that. Let's not bury the lead. Let's find out what happened on Yom Kippur. You know, this is ironic, isn't it? 50 years ago, there was an external assault on Israel. And this year, there was an internal assault on Israel. Only a rabbi could make that kind of connection, though I'm sure you have as well. So tell us the full story. Tell us what went down. Let's talk about this. So uh, there is an organization called Rosh Yehudi, which literally translates into a Jewish head or yeah, something like that, uh, which uh, uh, operates in Tel Aviv with the clear intention of promoting Orthodox Judaism within the liberal and secular city of Tel Aviv. And they have asked to conduct a prayer at the public sphere, at the, at the very uh, central square in Tel Aviv, Dizengoff Square, and they asked to hold a gender-segregated Orthodox prayer with a mechitza, with a physical bear between men and women, like a mechitza that has, you know, appears in an Orthodox synagogue. And the municipality said, no, I mean, you can have, you can, you know, sit wherever you like, you can have a men's section, women's section, but you can't place physical bears in the public sphere in Tel Aviv. So they appealed to the court, and the court rejected their appeal, and they appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court rejected it and said, the public sphere in Israel has to be equal without any separation between men and women, physical separation. That was the court decision, which was given just a few hours before Yom Kippur Eve. And then, nevertheless, they went on and put um, sort of a mechitza, and they put like metal um, poles on which they hung Israeli flags. Uh, which has become, by the way, the symbol of the protest, and start, tried to erect the mechitza, basically erected the mechitza, although the court forbidden that. And what happened was that a lot of people from the protest movement came and basically took the mechitza down, and there were sort of a lot of scenes which were very hard to watch during Yom Kippur, and it really symbolized the internal war. You mentioned it, the internal war that is going on in Israel for you know nine months now and has reached such a peak during Yom Kippur, and it, you know, generated a lot of responses, a lot of shocked responses by many people from, you know, different sides on the political spectrum. And it was indeed the heartbreaking scenes to watch. But on the other hand, <laughs> I think it really shows that we are now in a, in, in a point that we were never in it up until now. So the liberal public for so many years was willing to accept the fact that others define what is Jewish enough, how the public sphere should you know, operate in Israel, and people are now saying no more. You know, that's it. We're not willing to allow gender segregation in the public sphere, not even in the within the context of prayers, because we want to be the one who define what a public sphere in a democratic and Jewish state looks like. And this is something that is really one of a kind. And as someone who has been, you know, leading these fights for democracy and for Jewish pluralism and freedom of religion, it's a very refreshing stance. It's a very hopeful, I think, situation in which we find out that, as you said, the millions of Israelis who are, who are out there in the streets for so many months understand that it's not only about protecting the courts, which is tremendously important for the protection of human rights of different groups, but it's also about defining what is the Jewish identity of the Jewish state. And the awakening of the Israeli public that starts to understand that they have, we have to take responsibility for our Judaism is amazing. And that's really something that we at the Reform Movement and the Israel Religious Action Center have been saying for so long. But now it somehow sunks in. So let me ask you a couple of personal questions, and then I want to get back to a philosophical question, because you're raising some issues that really 
have touched and have moved me. So let's talk about you. Where'd you grow up? So I was actually born in Canada, in Ottawa. I thought I heard that in your accent. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Came back to Israel as a baby. Parents just spent a year uh, in Ottawa. And I grew up in Israel. I grew up in a secular family was not affiliated at all, did not attend, you know, synagogue or was, wasn't part of a congregation. And 23 years ago, I moved to where I live in Mevaseretzion, which is a suburb of Jerusalem. I was looking then for a preschool for my son. He was then three. And people told me you should go and check the preschool of the Reformed congregation. And that's what I did. And I, I, I loved it. And I joined the congregation. And since then, I'm a part of the Reformed congregation. And uh, a few years later, when I was looking for a job, I asked my rabbi if she has an idea, and she said, you know, you should contact the Israel Religious Action Center. And that's how I got to work, almost 20 years, uh, really finding both my spiritual home with the Reform Movement and my professional home at the Israel Religious Action Center, really finding a place where I could work and promote social action and the values I believe in from the perspective of Judaism. And I've been there ever since. To what extent is your story emblematic or, if not typical, illustrative of what many Israelis go through. So, for example, you grew up totally secular, unconnected to Jewish institutions, though, as we know, more connected to Judaism by virtue of the fact that you live in a Jewish land in a Jewish state. We should talk about what that means. And then you found your way to this wonderful reform community. Does this happen a lot with secular Jews? It does happen. I think a lot of families sort of discover Reform Judaism either through the preschools uh, of our congregations or through the fact that their kids go and have, you know, a bar but mitzvah ceremonies in our congregations, mostly bar mitzvahs. Unfortunately, very few girls uh, in Israel have a bat mitzvah or through weddings. Uh, some Israelis actually go abroad and live in the States, and, and that's how they discover uh, that there are other options, that there is liberal Judaism. And then when it comes to Israel, they say, oh, we have this option here. I think we see it quite a lot. It seems that you know there is a dramatic increase in the number of Israelis who identify as reform or conservative in the past decade, uh, but we still have a long way to go. So I think now we are at a very unique moment where, you know, people may be more interested in really reclaiming their Judaism. And we can even, you know, reach more people who are now appalled by the Judaism, by the extremist Judaism that the government is presenting and are looking for other options. And I'm sure that our option uh, would appeal to them. This is something I've noticed over the last five years. I go to Israel every summer. I study at the Shalom Hartman Institute. I think this past summer might have been my 50th trip to Israel. And what I noticed increasingly over the years is how ostensibly secular Jews in public acts of Jewish solidarity and liturgy are essentially saying to Orthodox authorities, these are our texts as well. These belong to us as well. You can't have them. You don't have a monopoly over creating Jewish meaning in the public sphere. Can you say more about that? Is is my perception right? I think it does not happen as much. I think a lot of Israelis, when we're talking about Judaism, think of a very particular Judaism that they don't relate to. I can tell you that the slogan of the Israeli reform movement uh, when we joined the current protests is we protect democracy in the name of Judaism. And, you know, I went from the very beginning distributing signs saying exactly that. And a lot of people, mainly in Tel Aviv, in the central protests in Tel Aviv, looked at me and said, mm, 
it does not resonate with us. We don't feel that's true because they thought of the Judaism that, you know, this government is promoting and that's not what they're identify with. So I think it takes a lot of work and I think we're now in a different place, but still a lot of Israelis equate Judaism with a certain version that they completely do not align with. You know, there is a saying that the synagogue most Israelis don't go to is Orthodox, right? Because most Israelis are secular. So when they think about the synagogue that they don't attend, that's the Orthodox. I think this has started to change over the last decade. And I think now, uh, you know, people understand there is more than one way to be Jewish and they can go to a synagogue that reflects their values. But, you know, we're st we still have a long way to go. It's really funny. Uh, this is awakening stuff in me about my own parents, both of whom are, are, are dead. My father was fleeing a kind of stultifying, generic, right-wing, conservative orthodoxy of the 1930s. My mother was fleeing a equally stultifying, secular Judaism of the 1930s, and they came together in Reform Judaism. It's where they found each other a place where they could grow Jewishly. So what's happening in Israel, therefore, is this kind of repetition, this miming of an earlier Jewish journey. I, I want to talk about democracy for a second here because I keep on running into people who don't understand democracy. And I have to admit that I probably was one of them at a certain point. So if I'm with a group of people and we got 10 people and we're going to vote on whether we're going to have pizza or sushi and eight people vote that we're going to have pizza, two people vote for sushi. Well, by the way, just nothing personal. Just want to know <laughs> where would you come down on this? Sushi, of course. Of course. But it has to be vegan though. Okay. Got it. Got it. And I, I owe you a vegan sushi next time we're in Jerusalem. But here's the thing. You would say, most people would say, okay, pizza won. The pizza party, <laughs> sorry, the pizza party won, beating out sushi. They see democracy as being majoritarian, winner-take-all, a mathematical issue. I keep on getting this all the time. You people are trying to undermine democracy. This is what Israelis voted for. Can you please talk about this before I go crazy? Yeah, that, I think that's a very important point. And I think a lot of people, and of course, what the, the Israeli government is trying to sell is that democracy is, you know, you go to election every four years in Israel, it's every year and a half. You vote and the party who wins can do whatever he wants. I think during the last nine months, a lot of Israelis have gone through a very extensive course of civic studies to understand what democracy is all about. And IRAC and a lot of other organizations did a lot to spread the right information, you know, in contrast to the fake news that the government has been spreading and letting people understand that democracy is also separation of powers and also protection of human rights. So if we have 120 members of the Knesset, 119 members of the Knesset cannot tell the one remaining, you can't vote. That's not a democracy. And I think we've gone a long way forward. I think a lot of people now in Israel have not only understand more, but are also have become constitutional law experts. You know, in Israel, people didn't know anything about what's the actual uh, situation of, you know, the fact that we do not have a constitution, that we have basic laws, what's their status. People did not know this. Now, 
if you hop on a cab in Israel, the cab driver would explain to you, explain to you what the constitutional situation in Israel is. And by the way, I think a lot of liberal Jews outside of Israel have become much more aware. And that's the first step toward change or fighting uh, injustices is to understand what's the facts, to be aware of the problems, and then to try to change them. So I think we've gone uh, a long way forward. And what I keep telling you know, the, the proponents of this government and of this judicial coup is you don't understand that things could change, right? I mean, today you're the majority. What happens if tomorrow you would be a minority? You will need the protection of the court because then you won't have the power. I mean, every, any one of us could find him or herself in a minority and in need of protection from the majority. And this is something that I think more and more Israelis understood, and that's why they went to the streets, because they, they felt we have to make sure that our rights are protected no matter who is in power. And that's, I think, a very good development. But, but it's clear, by the way, that we have a big problem with civic studies in our educational system. People in Israel, it's probably all over the world, don't get the required um, you know, tools necessary to be a really responsible citizen and to understand what's actually at stake. So we have a lot to do in actually making our children and our youth more aware of what you know, a real democracy is. We are, you know, however, if you go out to the protests, you see a lot of young Israelis who are out there in the streets, a lot of students who are now at the forefront of the protests. And you spoke earlier about the fact that a lot of uh, liberal Jews in America feel alienated from Israel. I guess it's especially so when you talk about young uh, liberal Jews. And I think that may be actually a, an opportunity to reconnect them because seeing this unbelievable awakening of young Israelis within the protest movement who are out there and saying we are going you know to fight this because we're going to make sure that Israel remains the land that we have dream- dreamed of that maybe is a point where we could reconnect american jews that could be inspired by this really unbelievable and unprecedented protest which is led by young people we'll be right back i'm paul brandeis rauschenbusch This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, it was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Aubin Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. Hi, once again, welcome to Martini Judaism for those who want to be shaken and stirred. And we are so lucky today. I'm Jeff Sulkin, Rabbi Jeff Sulkin. I'm your host. This is religionnews.com. And what we are talking today about is religious freedom in Israel. My guest is Orly Erez Lakovsky, who is the executive director of the Israel Religious Action Center. If you were listening before, we took a little bit of a break. We were talking about Israel's constitution. True or false? Kids, if you're listening at home right now, raise your hand. True or false? Does Israel have a constitution? I'm sorry. Israel doesn't have a constitution. This shocks people. But Israel does have, I want to just circle back to this because this is even bigger than I thought. Israel does have a foundational document and it's Megillat Atzma'ut, which is 
falsely translated as the Declaration of Independence to make it sound more American, but it's really a scroll of independence. It's a Megillah because it's intended to be a sacred text that could be appended to a modern version of the Hebrew Bible, like the Megillah to Esther, like the scroll of Ruth, Esther, Ecclesiastes, or whatever. And that lays out a social and communal vision for the state, even and especially in the absence of a formal constitution. Okay, Orly, welcome back. This is not the final exam, but it's an exam question. How does your work create a midrash on the Declaration of Independence? How is your work interpreting that vision for Israel? Because this is crucial. That's a foundational document. There's no constitution. Yeah, there are many stories that go into the creation of the state, but the declaration is, 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 is well, it's, it's written in stone. <laughs> How is your work in Midrash on that? Well, first of all, I think really the, this declaration or scroll of independence really embodies the values that we uh, at IROC uh, try to promote, but in general that a lot of Israelis identify with. And I think the tragedy is that you can't have a majority of members of the current Knesset who would sign this declaration of independence, which is really unbelievable. I think, you know, that the most important paragraph in the declaration of independence talks about complete equality between the citizens of Israel, regardless of race, religion, and sex. I mean, I think this is really what embodies our work. So basically what we do is we fight religious extremism, which tries to undermine women's rights and liberal Jews' rights and rights of Arabs, uh, Israeli-Palestinians, and rights of people uh, who are, belong to the LGBTQ community. And we do all those because we say this is not our Judaism. We are not going to allow the government and other state authorities to violate rise, those rights of these groups in the name of Judaism, because this is not our Judaism. We believe in a Judaism which is inclusive and equal, and believes that all, all of us were created in the in the image of God. So we work for freedom of religion, okay? We try to uh, fight the orthodox and ultra-orthodox monopoly here in Israel on religious services, demanding and actually already achieving some funding of liberal and conservative religious services, demanding recognition of our conversions, demanding an egalitarian uh, prayer space, a, really al- a real alternative of an egalitarian pl- prayer space at the Western Wall. We fight for women's rights and specifically against the very dangerous trend of gender segregation in the public sphere, a phenomenon that started only around 25 years ago and is literally an Israeli invention that does not happen anywhere else where, you know, on the basis of Jewish religion, there are uh, multiple attempts to uh, make female, uh, you know, women disappear and their voices silenced and restrict them in in, in a lot of contexts in, uh, um, you know, how they operate in the public sphere, whether it's, you know, sending them to the back of the bus or not allowing a woman to eulogize her loved ones and during a funeral and many, many other uh, instances, uh, modesty requirements um, and such, uh, moving, asking a woman to move uh, from her airplane seat because uh, a man does not want to sit next to her. Multiple instances, all of which, by the way, were declared illegal by the courts in our cases. And we are also, another big fight is fighting racism. So really fighting those who use Judaism to incite hate uh, and violence against Arabs, including rabbis, including rabbis who are in formal posts employed by the state. We demand that they be brought to justice because incitement to racism in Israel is a criminal offense. And we also fight, you know, instances of racism, such as um, a cab company which operated a cab service with Jewish 
cab drivers only, literally uh, discriminating uh, Arab cab drivers in Jerusalem. Uh, we were just finishing this case, and this service has been abolished. And we also have a legal aid center for Orlim, for new immigrants, assisting uh, around a thousand new immigrants each year. And, you know, since the war in Ukraine broke out last year, we have been assisting many, many uh, Jews and their relatives who, you know, wanted to flee uh, the war and find a refuge in Israel. And, you know, I can tell you that today, right before we started this podcast, I attended a protest, uh, actually a prayer, in Central Square in Tel Aviv near Habima Theater, which is our answer to what happened on Yom Kippur. So the reform movement convened a prayer for democracy and for uh, peace uh, here in Israel to really show the Israeli public that we, we offer a different kind of Judaism, a, a religion which is really, uh, you know, treats everyone equally and believes that all of us have the same rights. Uh, and we really got some very, very warm responses from people just walking there. It was right at the heart of Tel Aviv. And it is clear that more and more people here in Israel, I mean, a, a clear majority of Israelis support those values as embodied in the Declaration of Independence and do not agree with what the government is doing and with the version of Judaism that this government is presenting. And I think that's a really amazing step forward. So we are now in a very different place than we were, you know, just a year ago. And while the situation is very hard and troubling and concerning, this definitely presents, you know, a moment of opportunity like never before. So, you know, I'm, I can tell you that in general, I'm optimistic that well, we are in very, you know, I'm, I'm very concerned with what's going to happen now with the Knesset coming back to session very soon after Sukkot. We're in the middle of the war. Uh, We're in the trenches. It's very, very hard. But I think that out of this, we will have to create a new covenant, a new contract between these different sectors of Israeli society, which will be based on the values of the Declaration of Independence. You know, it's interesting to me. Attending protests as I did this past summer, albeit in Jerusalem, which is rather small compared to what's going on at Kaplan in Tel Aviv. I noticed something very interesting. I noticed that the usual fabled boundaries between the left and the right seem to be evaporating. I did see many more people there uh, wearing a kippot, knitted kippot. In other words, people who are connected in some way to what you and I would call religious Judaism there. I'm hearing from friends of mine who would identify with more observant streams of Judaism, how much they respect the work that we are doing there. So what's clear to me is that we have a very delicate issue here, which is what should the role of Judaism be in the Jewish state? If I hear you correctly, Orly, I'm just going to build some metaphors here. There is a version of Judaism that believes in walls and gates. And the chitzot. Exactly right. Walls, gates, in part, and, and separations. And what I hear you talking about is a Judaism that understands its boundaries, but is a Judaism of bridges and passageways as well. Am I getting that right? And can you formulate what... Look, I, I realize this has been discussed for 100 years or so, what would even a religious Judaism, because you and I, were, we're religious Jews. We didn't give anyone else that description in order to just have a monopoly over it. So what, what should Judaism look like in the Jewish state? I have snapshots of this, but I want to hear it from you. I like your metaphor, and I think, you know, I 
I would say that the leading sentence is really live and not live, okay? So we don't believe in coercion, we really believe in choice, right? Reform Judaism believes that everybody chooses how to express uh, his or her own religion. And, and what we believe in is that everybody could decide how he or she wants to live his life. And that means that the public sphere cannot you know, coerce or lead to a certain way, uh, but rather be equal and inclusive and tolerant of, of you know, different ways of life. Um, and I think this is in complete contrast to what the government is saying and to what, of course, ultra-Orthodox, the Orthodox parties in the coalition says that you know, there is one way to be Jewish and anybody who does not agree with them is not really Jewish and does not have a legitimate place in the Jewish states or, or elsewhere. And I think the you know, role of secular Jews is, is really important because I think a lot of people when presented with this liberal option would feel, you know, sort of kind of a kinship to it. I mean, uh, as you say, people who live in Israel are not completely, you know, detached from religious life because it's really part of, of Israeli life. I think they do identify with it. Of course, they do want to go and attend, you know, the high holidays. The Yom Kippur prayers here in Mevaser which is a very small city of 30,000 people, we had 500 people at the Kol Nidre and at the Deinla, so people are looking for those those options. They want to to express their Judaism to, to some extent, and you know we give them the options. So I think it's really about giving a choice. It's definitely also about bridges uh, and not separating or pushing people away, but rather you know being inclusive, but also letting people decide whether they want it or they don't want it. And we for too too many years we have really given the keys to our Judaism and to the Judaism of the state to very extreme factors which have become more and more extreme, okay? Today the Orthodox are much more extreme than they used to be. Of course the ultra-Orthodox with a lot of, uh, you know, modesty inventions that were never like this until uh, a decade or so ago. And today's Israel are saying, you know, no more. I mean, that's enough. We've had it up until, uh, up until there. And, and that's, that's a really important moment. I want to also touch, you know, we, we haven't talked, uh, I think, enough about what, what the role of, of American Jews is here. We need to do this because I've often said that American Jews are from Mars and Israeli Jews are from Venus, to quote that book about how men and women perceive reality differently. I've been thinking about this for a long time. So please talk about this. We need to talk about our different perceptions of Judaism, Israel, and what American Jews must bring into this conversation. This is big stuff. It's very interesting. I think for many years, some Israelis said to American Jews, well, you know, don't interfere in what's going on because you don't live here. And I think millions of Israelis now turn to American Jews and say, please raise your voice. And you should raise your voice because we're fighting for Israel's soul and because you have to do it before it's too late. And what I say is that, you know, since Israel is a Jewish state, all Jews have a seat at the table. And I think that it's not only your right to raise a voice, it's your duty. Because when you see someone you love make a huge mistake, it's your duty to tell him, stop it. Because that's not what the Jewish state should look like. And you spoke about alienation of some, you know, of a lot of American Jews toward Israel. I think now more and more American Jews understand that it's, the, it's time to raise your voice. Even if people told them, you know, you shouldn't criticize Israel, it could fuel anti-Semitism, it could fuel BDS. It is not. I mean, the thing that fuels anti-Semitism is what the government is doing. And I think more and more organizations and congregations 
and American Jews understand we have to talk, we have to say that this is not our Judaism, this is not what the Jewish state looks like, this is not what uh, we have dreamed of. And I think those aggregated voices are tremendously important. They're important in and of themselves because they can make a difference coming from, you know, many, many uh, places at once. And they're also important because they give us in Israel energy and strength. And I can tell you that when uh, Rabbi Rick Jacobs, the uh, president of the URJ, spoke at the Tel Aviv rally at the end of February, he got such warm responses from the audience, from just Israelis who stopped him and told him, thank you for your words. This is so important to know that you overseas support us in this really, really difficult and Sisyphean struggle. And it really gives us, you know, you know, so much energy to continue. Uh, so I think that's also very, very important. Another important phenomenon is really, you know, to see the protest movement in the United States. I mean, the fact which is led, you know, was led first by Israeli expats, but has been joined by a lot of uh, American liberal Jews all over the United States, and that's, I think, tremendous. We saw the protests in New York uh, in Netanyahu's visit last uh, week uh, at the UN, and that's also really fuels the protests here in Israel and, and helps us to understand that we, you know, we are all in this together, and it's important to keep on fighting. And, and I think in this regard, it's important for American Jews to sort of know what's going on, to stay updated. You mentioned IRAC's uh, website. You're welcome to sign up for a newsletter, which is called the Pluralist, uh, a weekly newsletter, which really gives you a sort of a glimpse of what, what has been going on this week, what have we have been doing. So I think keeping updated, being in touch. Sometimes we ask our readers to send uh, emails to the Israeli government, to Israeli embassies and consulates. It's another really important way to have your voice heard. So all of this are, you know, steps that American Jews could do to help us, to really help us in this so such critical fight for Israel to stay democracy. You know, I've been radicalized just ever so slightly as a result of this, and I am increasingly coming to believe that American Jewish organizations and Israel-related organizations that are remaining silent during this time of crisis are squandering their moral and Jewish inheritance, and that our young people are watching. And we worry about our young people. We worry about their connection to Israel. And we want them to have a love of the Jewish state, which is not rooted only in complaint. And that is something, unfortunately, that I've seen so much of. People who trot out their Jewish identity only when there's something to complain about in terms of Israel. But on the other hand, there is the opposite phenomenon which is what I call the worship of startup nation, where people are just sort of trotting out all these wonderful inventions and technologies that Israel is creating, but they're forgetting that startup nation also has to be act up nation. And they're, they're forgetting that God did not call us together at Sinai to have a kingdom of scientists and technologists. God brought us together at Sinai to create an Am Kadosh, a holy people, and that Israel, the state, is intended to be the laboratory for that. Here's a scary thing. Can I can I share something with you? This is a little scary. I don't want to depress you. It occurred to me, and not only to me, I think also to Danny Gordis, whose book is really very good. And Danny should be paying me for this podcast. Israel is celebrating its 75th anniversary today, this year. You know what's uncanny to me? If we go back to Jewish history, 
If we look at the first Jewish commonwealth, under David, Solomon falls apart when Solomon dies because of internal dissension. If we look at the second Jewish commonwealth, under the Hasmoneans of Maccabee fame, Hanukkah fame, okay, that also fell apart because of internal discord. Neither of them lasted longer than 75 years. So what kind of danger is there in your mind? Let's go to apocalyptic here. You know, I, I fantasized recently that there should be another partition of the land, not into a Jewish state and a Palestinian state. That's another conversation for another time. But maybe like two versions of a Jewish state. People have said there should be a state of Tel Aviv for secular Jews and people who believe like us, and there should be a state of Israel or Judea and Israel for, for the Haredim that would become a theme park for pre-modern Judaism that doesn't speak to our values. Are you afraid that there's going to be a schism in Israeli life that will be irreparable? You know, we, we're coming up on Sukkot. I don't know when this is going to post, hopefully before next Sukkot. And I, I think of... You know, the image from the prophet Amos, uh, on that day I will raise up the fallen sukkah of the house of David. The house of David was a sukkah. You know, it was a ramshackle hut. It was not stable. Am I talking about your fears here, Orly? And if I'm not, talk me down. <laughs> well, yeah, there are a lot of talks about, you know, let's, you know, have a partition between the liberals and the illiberals, between the, those who believe in democracy and those who believe in this version of Judaism that the government promotes. I don't think that, you know, that's really uh, an option. And I think that if you really, you know, ask Israelis, most of them, a vast majority of them, believe in liberal values. Okay, if, according to all polls, you have a huge majority who is against the extremism of this government and a huge majority which supports women's rights and religious freedom and LGBTQ rights. Unfortunately, the issue of racism and, and the Israeli-Palestinians is, is, is more complicated, although even in this context, you see that people are starting to connect the dots and to understand that what happens in the territories in the West Bank penetrates to Israel and does not stay there. So that's also something that has been going on in the last few months. So in this sense, it's, it's clear that when you actually look at what the people believe in, most of them do not believe in extremism and most want to live in a liberal state. And even those who voted for the ultra-Orthodox parties, you know, some of them do not want to live this kind of life. And some people who voted for Ben-Gvir, horrible racist Jewish strength party, I don't remember who said it's not Jewish strength, what they're doing is Jewish weakness. But even though not all of them are racist, you know, some people voted because they said, oh, we're looking for a strong guy who will, you know, solve all Israel's problem, which of course he didn't because he can't. So in, in this sense, I don't think they, they actually support those views. And poll after poll, you see that the current coalition, if, you know, elections were held today, would not have a majority. And the, the awakening of the Israeli public, you know, we spoke about lasting beyond 75 years. I think that's what saved us. The fact that, you know, we, were, we had to be awakened by this horrible government and what it's doing, not only about the legal coup, but about a lot of other bills and initiatives uh, which they want to promote and are really, really dangerous. This has awakened the Israeli public that otherwise might have, you know, still be the sleeping giant and uh, uh, interested majority 
who would stay at their house and say, you know, we don't, we're not interested in what's going on out there. Now they're out there. Now so many Israelis are out there in the streets, millions and millions. You know, by the way, if we're trying to translate it to American terms, it's around 16 million Americans going out to the streets for nine months. I mean, that's it's really unheard of. So those people are out there on the streets and they're not going to give up. And I think that is what's going to save us. Now, it's not going to be easy. We are in a very dangerous situation. The society is very polarized, as has seen in the events in Yom Kippur. But we would come out of this, I think, stronger. And we would have to resolve a lot of issues that, you know, have been buried down there. And, you know, we at Iraq have been talking about them for many years. But now a lot of people joined us in understanding those are issues that should be resolved. You know, uh, five years ago, the, the Knesset passed the nation-state law. And we opposed this because we said we have to make sure that it also mentioned the word equality and the fact that Israel is democracy, not only the state of the Jewish people. And we were almost alone in this fight. And I remember trying to organize protests and people hardly came in. There were a few thousand people, but that's it. Because people didn't understand. And now people say, oh, how come we let this happen? Because, you know, they were sleeping there. They weren't awakened. And now with this awakening, we are in a different place. You know, d- during... Uh, uh, the Slichot period before Yom Kippur, you know, we speak about the book of Jonah and uh, there is this beautiful piyut who is saying, Ben Adam Malecha Nirdam, right? Man, why are you asleep? Go out there um, and ask forgiveness. And, and I think we are really in this state, in the state of awakening that has been going on for a few months. People are not going back to sleep. That's it. I think the big challenge is how we take this and translate it into real change. And the next uh, test of this protest is the municipal elections. We're going to have local elections in Israel at the end of October. In a similar manner to what happened in the, in the United States during the Trump era, where people try to focus on the state level rather than the national level, we, are, we have here an opportunity to make a difference on the local level. And people understand that's an opportunity we should grab Hopefully the voter turnout will be very high and candidates understand that they need to speak about liberal issues. They need to to make sure that the local public sphere is going to be liberal toward women and toward reformed Jews and to make sure that there is liberal education in schools and a lot of issues that up until now people did not vote about in the municipal elections. And now people are saying, we're going to make sure this is going to happen. So that's a chance to really translate it into change, to make sure that in each city we have, you know, values which, which you know, really um, reflect what we think should be the situation. That's sort of the test. And when we were going to have the next national elections, of course, we will need to be very, um, you know, to organize better than the last elections and hopefully we would be able to create a lasting political change. IRAC.org. I hope that many of you who are listening right now are inspired to become part of this amazing transformational work. Orly, before we go, speak to my kids. I have two sons in their 30s. They love Israel, but they're just emblematic of their generation. What do our young people in America need to hear? You know, I think... uh in the same manner that Americans did not give up on America during hard times, such as the Trump era that I hope would not come back, we should not give up on Israel. I think we have a special, uh, hopefully a special place that Israel occupies in the minds and hearts of American Jews. It's not easy. 
but you know we have to make sure that we're fighting and we're going to win this battle and it, we will be able to do it if we work together and we continue to fight understanding that it's a long fight but understanding that with the really uh, unbelievable power of people both inside of Israel and outside of Israel we can win this and we can make sure that the declaration of independence becomes a reality and in the sense I really ask all the listeners and of course your kids not to give not to give up on Israel not you know take your hands off Israel but rather dig in dive even more deeply uh, to help us the people who you know try to defend defend the soul of Israel to help us make sure we succeed and I believe we will I have to end with the following story for you that I think will give you great joy I have cousins who made Aliyah a number of years ago and they're Orthodox I would say centrist Orthodox when they lived in the States they would sometimes politely and gently criticize me for being a reform rabbi. Not in a mean way, just sometimes jibes. They make Aliyah, and several summers ago, they say to me the following words that I never dreamed I would hear. We're having lunch, and they say to me, I really must commend your movement and the Israel Religious Action Center for standing up for Olim, new immigrants, and all sorts of other people. You really, Jeff, have a lot to be proud of there. And I'd like to think they're not in the minority. I think that what we are doing is an Or Chadash al This is a new light on Zion that we're shining. And it's really because of you and what you are doing to make sure that the values that Israel projects to the world are an export as powerful and as useful as a new kind of medical technique. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, the song Ainli Eretz Acheret keeps coming back to me. I have no other country. Even though my country has changed her face, this is my home. And I say so with longing, says the composer. I have no other country. Now, it is true that American Jews have another country. But Israeli Jews don't. This is all I got. I'm in a relationship with this land, and this is it. I could leave. I'm not going to leave. I have no choice. I've made a covenant with this land and with this state. And I think this is true for all Jews everywhere. And so, Orly, Erez Lachowski, I am so grateful to you for having spent time with us. It's a crazy time of year. We're recording this between Yom Kippur and Sukkot. And we're coming into the harvest. The moon is going to be full. And I hope that it's really a time of harvest for you and really all the holy stuff that you are doing. Friends, this is important. IRAC.org. And tell Orly that I sent you. Orly, I look forward to hanging out with you next summer in Jerusalem. I would love that. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. You were great. And listen, I'm inviting everyone here, please follow my regular column, Martini Judaism on religionnews.com. That's the religion news service. I usually publish twice a week. The good news is I have no unpublished thoughts. The bad news is I have no unpublished thoughts. (laughs) And our producer here is Jay Woodward. Martini Judaism is a Blue Jay Atlantic production. 
for Religion News Service. So Martini Judaism, for those who want to be shaken and stirred, you can find this on Spotify, on Google, on Apple, Audible, wherever you get your podcasts. Just do me a favor, please. Be helpful. Download the podcast. Leave us a five-star rating. And we'll see you again soon. Shalom, everyone. Thanks for being here. And Orly, really, Lehitra Oat, you are awesomely great. And Chazak Chazak, or Chizki Chizki. May you be strong, and may you strengthen all of us together. Thank you so much.